You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville. For their support, we'd like to thank Scraps Cat and Dog Bakery, open 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday, offering deliveries and curbside pickup at 2034 Nevada City Highway, next to BNC Hardware, 530-274-4493. Also, Foothill Dry Ice, family-owned dry ice manufacturers in Grass Valley, with delivery service available, also supplying conventional wet ice. Open daily, 830 to 3. Extended hours during power outage emergencies. Information at foothilldryice.com. Next up, we have NPR headlines followed by regional weather. And then this week's edition of Brave Hearts. Also, financial news with Gary Zimmerman. This week's edition of National Native News and a commentary with Jim Hightower. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting Making Contact, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by local weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Former Vice President Joe Biden and President Donald Trump held dueling rallies in Florida today. The pair stumping in a state that Biden is looking to turn blue as the clock ticks down to Election Day next week. At a drive-in rally in Broward County, Florida, an energized Biden urged supporters to get out the vote on Tuesday. Five days left, folks. Millions of Americans are already voting. Millions more are going to vote by the end of this week. But President Trump had a different message, namely that Floridians need to vote the same way they did in 2016 and return him to the Oval Office. If Biden wins, China wins. When we win, Florida wins and America wins. It's very simple. Trump canceled a scheduled rally tonight in North Carolina due to remnants of hurricane now tropical depression Zeta, which has brought high winds to that state. Maine, which has the lowest new daily case rate of COVID-19 in the country, is now seeing a spike in cases. As Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports, officials are reporting 80 new cases today, an all-time high. Although Maine's metrics on the coronavirus are still very favorable compared to the rest of the U.S., officials are concerned the spike could signal the beginning of exponential growth. The director of the Maine Center for Disease Control, Dr. Nirav Shah, says increases are occurring even in rural areas that previously had low numbers. What is happening in Maine right now is sustained increasing levels of transmission in communities across our state. Though Maine is contending with several outbreaks, Shaw says new cases are primarily being driven through small household gatherings. Maine's Governor Janet Mills is urging people to wear masks and stay six feet apart during both public and private gatherings. For NPR News, I'm Patty White in Lewiston, Maine. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims took a dip last week, falling to 751,000. That's the lowest level since March, though still at very high levels as the coronavirus pandemic continues to affect the economy. Stocks closed higher today, clawing back some of the ground they lost earlier this week. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow was up about a half a percent. The Dow's gain was the smallest among the major stock indexes. The S&P 500 rose 1.2 percent, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq jumped more than 1.6 percent. The rebound came on a day the Commerce Department reported record quarterly growth in the U.S. economy. GDP grew by 7.4 percent in July, August, and September. That reversed some of the damage from the previous quarter, when the coronavirus lockdowns caused the economy to shrink by 9 percent. 
GDP is still about 3.5% smaller than it was before the pandemic struck. Forecasters expect slower economic growth in the last three months of the year, especially if we continue to see high levels of new coronavirus infections. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow is up 139 points. The Nasdaq rose 180 points. This is NPR. About 280,000 people in Oklahoma are still without power following a powerful ice storm that hit large parts of the state. South Bodina member station KOSU has more. With power lines across the state downed by the ice, many people have been living without lights or heat since Monday. Some roads remain blocked by the power lines and broken tree limbs. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt declared a state of emergency, and the American Red Cross has set up several warming stations for people to escape the cold. On the first day of early voting in the state, some election boards like Oklahoma County are operating on backup power generators. And using a paper voting system means there are no significant interruptions to the voting process. For NPR News, I'm Seth Bodine in Oklahoma City. Iran's foreign minister is strongly condemning a knife attack that killed three people in southern France, calling it a terrorist attack. Javid Zarif in a statement on Twitter today saying we strongly condemn today's terror attack in Nice, going on to say such actions must be replaced by reason and sanity. Zarif also referred to French President Emmanuel Macron's staunch support of secular laws to protect caricatures depicting the Prophet Muhammad as an exercise in freedom of expression, adding that, quote, radicalism only breeds more radicalism. The National Association of Realtors says pending home sales took their first move down in four months in September, showing some sign the market was easing back a bit heading into the fall. Real Estate Industry Trade Group says its index of pending sales of existing homes fell 2.2 percent. Slight cooling comes after an unusually busy summer in the housing market. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, Looks like we'll have a low of 58 tonight, high of 77 tomorrow, mostly sunny all week with highs in the upper 70s. In Sacramento, low of 42, high of 79, sunny through Monday with highs in the low 80s, and Truckee, low of 24, high of 71, sunny through next week with highs in the low 70s. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Good evening. Tonight I'm sitting here with Tom Keller of Communities Beyond Violence, and I just want to thank you for joining us tonight, Tom. You bet. Tom and I have known each other for a while, worked with Hospitality House and various other agencies, and it's a a privilege to be able to sit down with him tonight. So I'm curious, Tom, what does Communities Beyond Violence do, and how does it become connected with the homelessness? Well, Community Beyond Violence basically seeks to advocate for and help folks who um, have been victimized by interpersonal violence of any kind, really. As far as housing goes, and, and there are people at Community Beyond Violence who could speak to that much more eloquently than myself. Basically, I'm the housing guy there. 
They brought me on about a year ago and we've kind of in that year, we've really tried to build a housing program and as well as reach out to the rest of the community, the rest of the nonprofits who are doing, you know, a lot of times much the same and have as much collaboration going on as possible. So yeah, that's, that's basically it. Community Beyond Violence in the last year, according to our latest stats, we've been able to house, and this includes every member of a family, but we've been able to house about 100 people over the last 12 months. And uh, it's been a, a really great thing to experience, and it's been a great thing to be able to collaborate with so many of the other nonprofits in town where we're all trying to do this work, and as well as, as you know, uh, organizations like property management companies who step up and try and make you know properties available to the folks that we serve. Now, there are some people out there in our listening audience that are wondering how does community beyond violence, how does that work with homelessness? How is that? Right. How does that come together? Um, they're like, well, hold it. You have shelter. You counsel. You you give guidance and sure you help with a lot of paperwork in other certain areas. So how does that turn into a homeless situation? We do have a safe house. So anybody who's at the safe house obviously is in a homeless situation. They need housing or they need help with housing. You'd be surprised really, I guess, at the number of folks who come to us for help who have had to leave their family situations because they are victims of violence and they're basically fleeing. And a lot of times they're fleeing with absolutely nothing. They just, for the sake of their own lives, they're trying to get away and and find some place to be. We do have the chance and the opportunity to work with a lot of people who are in need of housing. I mean, people, you know, sleeping in their cars or sleeping in a motel or, or couch surfing with a friend or whatever, just to be in a safer place. And that's where we meet people, and then we try and help them to get into, you know, permanent housing. And this doesn't just apply to women. This applies to men as well, correct? Exactly. You know, and and the reality is it's it's most of the folks, uh, you know, the great majority of the people that we we work with are women. But, yes, it it applies to men as well. And and I've had the pleasure of, you know, working with several men this year and trying to to help them get housed. So, yeah, it's, it's anybody and everybody who's... Uh, been a victim of violence, you know, needs help and needs someone to be an advocate for them. It's no surprise to me as you follow social media that the increase in domestic violence, suicide, crime is on the rise as a result of our COVID situation. Do you see some of that increasing as a result of that? You think people's Mental health, stress, addictions, all these things that are affected by isolation and our stay in place, or is it you seen our rise as a result of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think talking to the other advocates who I work with, they would basically say yes, that, that to, to answer your question, yes, COVID and having to isolate has been, you know, it's exacerbated already a, a bad problem, made it even worse. From my perspective as the housing guy, COVID has also had a real effect on the rental market and the lack of affordable places to live. That's been, (laughs) that's, that's kind of my burden to bear. The effect has definitely been dramatic. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
please visit calhum.org. Well, time to talk with Gary Zimmerman. Excuse me. Time to talk with Gary Zimmerman, KVMR's resident economist. And Gary, some big economic news today. Uh, how do you interpret the rapid growth in the economy's output or the GDP um, during this third quarter? Has the economy bounced back from the recession? Well, Paul, a real gross domestic product or output figure did increase at a rapid pace in the third quarter of 2020, and that was released this morning. Um, it was a 7.4% increase in, in absolute terms um, at an annualized rate or at an annual rate. Um, that would be a 33% you know, increase and in, it continued over a full year. Um, so it is good news. Um, the, the, the other question is, was the July, August, September growth rapid enough to make up for the, the much larger decline in the first six months of 2020? And the answer there is, is still no. Um, it made up a lot of ground, but we're still a long ways to go from getting the economy back to where it was before COVID. So, you know, on an annual basis, the economy shrank about percent changes, about 10 and a half percent in the first half of 2020, um, you know, with the combination of the pandemic and the efforts to, to slow it. So, you know, consider it this way that, you know, the economy shrank by a large amount. And, you know, this this is a strong bounce back. It was expected based on most of the numbers that we were seeing coming out. Um, but it does mean that, you know, we, we still have a long ways to go. Production is lower. Income is lower. Spending is lower. So lots of you know things are going on there. Okay, Gary, there is already is some rumbling out there that this was oddly released right before the election. Um, what's your take on that? No, no, this this is a number. This is the advanced GDP number, the first one. It's been scheduled. Uh, this is the standard date that it was scheduled to be released uh, for the third quarter, end of October. Um, so, no, that's that's the normal release date. That, that you know, makes perfect sense. Um, Okay, and, and the and the number was expected by you know most that it would going to be a pretty strong number given, but but again you have to put that in context of what happened in the prior quarter, which was you know a disaster. Okay, Gary, it looks like the economy is growing again and and pretty rapidly, but it isn't, but that it isn't really fast enough to make up for the huge loss uh, earlier in the year. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think, Paul, you've got it. The economy at the end of September is measured by the output of goods and services produced in the third quarter was about three and a half percent smaller than it was at the end of 2019. So, you know, while this today's increase was a record increase, the prior quarter's decline was, you know, even larger. And, and you know, so overall for the year to date, we're still looking at a pretty sizable decline. Maybe another way to think of this is if we if we lost $100 in the first half of the year, we've only gotten back about 60 or 70 of that. So we're still underwater. We're still we're still down, you know, 30 or 40 dollars. So we still have a long way to go to get back to, to where we were before the pandemic. Gary, um, something I'm curious about. In dollar terms, what was the GDP before the pandemic and how much higher or lower was it at the end of September? 
Okay, Paul. Yeah, it's certainly lower. It's about $670 billion lower at an annualized rate of you know, output or production. And that's, that's huge. That's a, that would be a couple, normally that would be a couple of years of growth. Um, so in dollar terms, uh, if, my note, if I got my notes right here, we, we were looking at the economy produced about $19.3 trillion in goods and services or GDP at the end of, uh, in, in 2019 for the full year. Um, in the third quarter of this year, the number just released this morning. The economy was only producing about 18.6 trillion at an annual rate, so it's a big decline um, in income and earnings output, and you know, and that hurts uh, all throughout the economy. Okay, Gary. Now, shouldn't we also take a look at what has happened to the, in the labor markets, which is a different uh, number? Uh, uh, you know, like the number of jobs or the unemployment rate. Has, has the labor market recovered from the pandemic and how do jobs and unemployment compare with, say, the end of last year before COVID-19? Okay, well, if we look at the labor markets, we're not as we're not as far back as we were if you look at the GDP numbers. Um, and labor markets tend to, to be a little slower in their re- slow, slower in their recovery. Um, you know, on, on top of that, we we do have now to face the resurgence of COVID in the nation across the nation and actually across the world, um, coming back at record levels. Um, and we've got some signs of weakening in the economy. Um, you know, coming concerns by the Fed chair, for example, um, and the prospects for growth in the next quarter, this quarter at the end of the year, are you know expected to be. Growth is expected to be much slower than than it was last uh, quarter as well. So, um, you know, the, there's a concerns that the economy could be you know, maybe slowing and could even stall out. Is one of the, I guess the Fed chair's concern um, without additional federal government stimulus to boost the unemployed workers and consumer spending and to, to provide relief to businesses. So, um, you know, it's important to look at other things. So <laughs> maybe it's time to go back to those labor markets. <laughs> Okay, then let's go uh, back to the labor markets and maybe some of the other economic indicators. Uh, What are they signaling, signaling? And specifically, are they showing that the recession is over? Is the recession over? Um, certainly not in the labor markets. Um, so if we examine some of the labor market indicators, the unemployment rate at 7.9% um, in September is you know, not falling rapidly anymore as well. And at that level, um, and the fact that the reductions are, are much slower than they were a few months back, uh, that just screams recession. Um, you know, and again, as Fed Chair Powell noted a few weeks ago, you know, without the, uh, or the, the expiration of the support for workers and businesses, you know, we've now left millions of workers, um, you know, without the wherewithal to pay rents and mortgages. Um, That's going to cause problems throughout the economy as well. Um, We also have had millions of workers who've left the labor force um, and the unemployment rate would be actually much higher, maybe even 11% if if we were to, to to account for that. Um, there's been a decline in payroll employment um, of about you know, 22 million in, in uh, following the uh, COVID. And you know, we've only added back about 11 million of those workers. So we still have a huge number of unemployed uh, workers out there. Um, we, we've, um, 
you know, we've got this, the number, another number that came out this morning was new weekly claims for unemployment insurance at a 751,000 this past week. Um, that's about double what you'd expect to see in a recession. Uh, and that would be a record if, uh, if it hadn't been for the, this huge numbers in the last, you know, in the COVID period. Um, so, you know, and we're still looking at, you know, tens of millions of workers who are, who are unemployed and, you know, collecting unemployment insurance. And, you know, at the same time, we've had, you know, declines in personal income in August that'll show up as weaker consumer spending uh, with the expiration of the unemployment benefits um, that will <laughs> reduce consumer spending as well. Um, you know, the increases in the unemployment rate um, have been, or excuse me, the reductions in the unemployment rate have gotten smaller and smaller, sort of trending downward. Uh, so all, all of those things point to an economy that's slowing. Um, you know, it's not totally rebounded, clearly not totally rebounded. We have a long ways to go in the labor markets. Oh, Gary, uh, one more question. I just was uh, I just noticed today online that uh, October 29th, the 91st anniversary of Black Friday. That's when the stock market crash began. Um, well, the market took a, a bit of a hit yesterday. I haven't checked it for today as COVID worsened around the world. So let me ask you this question. Uh, what did the most recent Fed forecasts or projections suggest for the economy's performance in 221 and 222? Okay, Paul. Um, yeah, that's a good question. You know, recession, depression, uh, growth, um, inflation, stagflation. Um, so let me, let me uh, sort of go back to the Fed chair Jay Powell's worries that, you know, you could get an economy that uh, recovery starts slowing and could stall out without additional federal government support, um, even though you know, the Fed with low interest rates are certainly doing all they can to help uh, boost the, the recovery. Um, so, you know, the, his sense that you needed increased spending to support the tens of millions of unemployed workers and the, and the many businesses that need relief um, or in danger of failing and, you know, cash state and local government. So there's a lot of areas of the economy today that, that need support, um, particularly from you know, government fiscal policy. So, um, yeah, we can also, you know, we can look at the Fed policymakers September projections. This would be mid-September projections. Now, again, that's before the, the recent spike in COVID. And I think most most economists, you know, think that, you know, <laughs> what happens to COVID will, will certainly affect the economy in, in a serious way if it gets worse. Um, but the, the September projections were for no recession um, going forward in 2021 or 2022. Gradual, slow reductions in the unemployment rate, um, slow inflation, gradually rising towards the Fed's 2% annual inflation goal. So, you know, if we looked at the Fed's projections, policymakers, you know, medium projection for, you know, 2020 minus 3.7%. So the Economy declines this year, grows about 4% in 2021 and 3% in 2022. So uh, that results in an unemployment rate of you know 7.6% at the end of this year, uh, falling to about 5.5%, you know, still a little above full employment at the end of 2021 and gets down to 4.6%. 
at the end of 2022. Um, inflation, 1.2% in 2021, so very low, well below the Fed's target of 2%, um, rising to 1.7% in 2021 and 1.8% in 2022. So, you know, and these are, you know, similar to the forecast from the major, you know, sector economic forecasts as well, which are, you know, continuing to, to show the economy should given the fundamentals should continue uh, expanding. Uh, Gary, the, isn't this based on the, the concept that somehow the COVID uh, virus will be under control? Yes, I think that um, that they're not, these projections, for example, were done, you know, before this latest surge. Um, so that that does, you know, change things. And I would be looking carefully to the, the Fed's, for example, December projections when the um, and, and, and recent, you know, maybe recent forecasts that uh, more recent forecasts that might have tried to evaluate the impact of COVID again. Um, and, you know, does it, we've seen today that the German and French economies have had some, you know, major changes in, you know, ligus lockdowns. Um, so things like that can certainly have a big impact on the economy. And that's, you know, needs, yeah, one needs to consider those as well going forward. Well, Gary, thanks a lot. Lots of information there for our listeners and look forward to our next chat. Okay. Thank you very much, Bob. Take care. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Native people are expressing their dismay over the Trump administration's decision Wednesday to exempt the nation's largest national forest from the roadless rule, which prevents road construction and logging. Tribal leaders in southeast Alaska say the Tungus National Forest is vital for those that forage, hunt, and fish on protected public lands. Of course, our reliance on the Tungus for our way of life uh, that is what we're trying to protect as natives in, in southeast Alaska is our way of life. That's Joel Jackson, president of the organized village of Cake. His was the first of a half dozen tribes to withdraw cooperation from the federal government. He says it became clear early on that indigenous voices were not being listened to. They just completely ignored our <clears throat> our input uh, and the input of the other five tribes. So... I felt very disrespected. The Trump administration's decision could be reversed through a court challenge or an act of Congress. Or another presidential administration could revisit the rule that would require public comment, meetings, and another multi-year process. More than a year ago, Alaska's Federation of Natives declared a climate change emergency. But as Emily Schwing reports, it's unclear what kind of progress has been made since. Climate change was not a focal point for discussion at the organization's recent annual convention. Last year, leadership with the Alaska Federation of Natives agreed to establish a climate change task force to advocate for climate change-driven policies. Well, not a lot has happened, not nearly as much, I think, that like we wanted to have happen. Nana Esh-Peter and Kwana Chasing Horse Pods stood before thousands, 
at the 2019 AFN convention in Fairbanks to plead for action on climate change. But now the two say they have no idea what's happening. We wrote them a letter earlier this year, just sort of asking them to keep us updated, putting ourselves out there, asking them to put us on the task force even. And And just kind of stating, you know, we want to make sure they are doing something like there is action, you know. Mm -hmm. The two young women did get a response. The AFN Executive Committee has taken on this resolution, wrote AFN President Julie Kitka in a March 3rd email. Kitka said there's been one meeting. She said the first effort would be to line up funding support. AFN declined multiple requests for comment. But in her email, Julie Kitka did say that AFN staff was considering approaching the National Science Foundation to secure a multi-year planning grant and that the Nature Conservancy has offered to lend support. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing. The Navajo Nation filed a lawsuit Wednesday against 33 farmers in an effort to end hemp operations on Navajo land in and around Shiprock, New Mexico. The Navajo Nation alleges the defendants are illegally producing industrial hemp and or marijuana. According to the lawsuit, their actions are causing injury to lands, water, and other natural resources. This is the second lawsuit by the Navajo Nation to stop hemp operations in the area. The tribe sued Diné Benali in June. A court issued a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction to prevent Benali from growing hemp. According to the tribe, police have worked to enforce the injunction, but farmers continue operations. The hemp issue has led to protests in the area from community members and opposition who claim safety concerns. A handful of Navajo agencies and police are scheduled to give an update to the community on various hemp-related matters on Friday. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Thursday edition of KVMR's Evening News. Coming up at 6.30, we have this week's edition of Making Contact, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. As a Texas high schooler many moons ago, I was the 115-pound outside linebacker on the Denison Yellow Jackets football team. Go Bugs! We won very few games, but we had spirit and some fun. Our coach, a down-to-earth fellow paid a modest public school salary, tried to instill a bit of the sporting ethic in us. Win or lose, give it your best. There is no I in team. Stuff like that. So whistle me out of bounds in the game of life, but I'm somewhere between sad and disgusted that the self-centered corporate ethic, survival of the greediest, is becoming the guiding spirit of even amateur games. The decline is most prevalent in big-time football programs where coaches make millions while the actual athletes are paid nothing and face crippling, even life-threatening injuries. But when the pandemic slammed into college budgets, squeezing out professors, students, and workers, the old-school spirit kicked in and coaches made widely publicized sacrifices, accepting pay cuts of 15 to 20 percent. Yay, coach! Only... 
it was a scam. Their cuts only applied to their base salary, not the full compensation they actually get. North Carolina coach Mac Brown, for example, draws $750,000 in base pay, which ain't bad, but his full paycheck is $3.5 million a year. So his ballyhooed sacrifice is really only 3%. He's still taking about $3.4 million in pay. But wait, the scam gets scummier, for even these minimal cuts are just deferments in pay. University of Texas coach Tom Herman, for example, took a half-million-dollar cut, but with a cynical wink, the university promised to give that same sum back to him within three years. This is Jim Hightower saying, what models of sporting character they are, teaching young people that it's not how you play the game that counts, but whether you win. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have Making Contact and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman.